bodies. You give it all such a glow. I don't know if it's art, but I like it. In the beginning, well, I did know. Welcome to episode 19 of the Film 89 podcast. My name is Sky, and as usual, I am still the editor of Film89.co.uk. Unfortunately, the rest of the guys uh, are going to be ducking out of this episode. We're recording at 11 o'clock in the morning, UK time. So unfortunately, that means that Steve Amos, uh, Richie Roberts, and Neil Gaskin are all tied up with work commitments. Um, as you know from our previous episode, uh, the Batman trilogy episode... Hayden Spurrell lives in Australia, which is 11 hours into the future. So, uh, again, I think if we get him on board now, that's going to somehow mess up the space-time continuum because he's in the future, things which are way beyond my level of understanding. So, unfortunately, Hayden's also had to duck out. And I did try and get Jim Cartle involved, but as you know, he's a bit of a curmudgeonly old chap, and um, I got him on the phone. Sounded like he was out in the mountains uh, or the hills walking around aimlessly mumbling to himself um, as he tends to do. So unfortunately it's going to be just me today but I have got a very special guest with me but um, I'll get on to that in a second. Firstly I would just like to say to all of our listeners both the ones who have been with us from the start and uh, those who have jumped on board recently uh, just a massive thank you to everyone for all your support for all your kind words on facebook and twitter for all your recommendations uh, to friends and family and importantly for those all important itunes reviews basically our following is increasing with each episode and episode 18 the v episode with bill scurry was um, our highest posting episode yet we reached our highest position in the Podomatic uh, podcast charts, much higher than any of us expected to be posting after only 18 episodes, given some of the long-standing competition we're going up against. So a huge thank you from myself and the rest of the guys at Film 89 um, for everyone and their continued support. It is so much appreciated. So on to this episode's guest. It is someone, he's, he's a fellow Brit. Uh, it's nice to have a Brit back on because I think the last time we had a Brit on was um, the author Mark O'Connell a few episodes back. Uh, he is a freelance illustrator and creator of some of the most stunning contemporary poster and film art for the likes of Arrow Video, Shout Factory in America, Empire Magazine, Dolby Cinemas, Star Wars Celebration, IDW Comics, HBO and AMC, Anchor Bay, Intrada Records and many more. His work is featured very frequently in our ongoing Film 89 Poster of the Day series, which you will see on both the website and Facebook and Twitter. Um, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to the podcast, finally, Mr. Paul Shipper. Paul, welcome to Film 89. Thank you, Sky. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. 
Paul, um, for those uh, who follow the site and, and the podcast who, who might not know who you are, tell us a bit about yourself, your background, what you do, and how you got into the business of, of designing movie posters and film key art. Well, I was born in Manchester and uh, grew up there for most of my life. And I uh, was always drawing for as long as I can remember. Uh, being uh, family and friends would encourage me to keep drawing and doing things. And I'd just be drawing in sketchbooks and stuff. And, and yeah, just it always been something I was interested in. And then um, when I was, I don't know how old, maybe 10 years old or so, I, I got my first poster from... A video shop and it was I really, I was just really loved it and it was I think I think the first one was probably something like adventures in babysitting I think that was maybe the first one and I just like I could just stare at it for hours I didn't know it was drawn by somebody I didn't have a clue about anything like that at this time as time went on I started collecting more posters and it turned out they were all by the same person well at least 90% of them were by an artist called Drew Struzan that moment there made me realize that somebody was doing this for for work and it was a job and I from then on I was like if I was going to do anything I want to do that <laughs> so it's just been a, a lifelong kind of dream come true that it's actually I'm, I've been able to work on s some movie posters for some really great movies and be able to work in the entertainment industry in, in the capacity which I do I've been doing a lot of like re-releases of older movies for people like Shout Factory and Arrow, like you mentioned, and and then on top of that, other jobs have happened. You know, I, I end up doing official Star Trek artwork, official Star Wars artwork. You know, things that I've loved my whole life, and be to be able to work on them and work on some of the new property that they've been creating has been amazing. So yeah dreams do come true i guess yeah i hope it continues i mean the, the trouble with this job is you just don't know when the next job might be coming so you kind of have to uh keep your wits about you and kind of pray that you're going to get more work but just uh yeah it's been a, a long journey from um, like i was born in 1976 so i graduated from university i, I went from uh, school to art college for two years and then went on to do a degree at university in illustration and animation. So I was three years and then graduated in 97. And I was working a bit while I was at university, kind of on little projects here and there and college. But I guess professionally, you could say I've been working since 1997, since I graduated, I guess. So it's been a, over 20 years now, you know, trying to make things happen. And and, and eventually, it, I think it probably takes, you know, 20 years to become an overnight success. Yes, you mentioned there, Paul, that first poster you had and the fact that you got it from a video shop. Now, one of the, the things that crops up quite frequently when, you know, me and the rest of the guys are getting together is that thing of our generation and this this sort of, this whole thing leaning towards nostalgia and the things that growing up which have influenced our film taste. And as soon as you mentioned then, go into a video shop and get a poster... Yes. Um, I did exactly the same thing. I think one of the, I think the very first one I ever had was um, the poster for Dragnet. You know, the oh, yeah. one, the one with, with those two big portraits of Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks and the big, you know, gold police badge. Um, but then, as soon as you mention that Adventures in Babysitting poster, I can immediately see it. It's the one with Elizabeth Shue and the rest of the kids, sort of um, abseiling down or climbing up the side yeah. of the, the of the building. It, you know, it's an iconic poster. It's yeah. not, it's not one I ever owned, and I've not got the film on Blu-ray, but it's just. It's one of those images growing up as a child that sort of sat with me. Yeah, but totally is. One of the questions which you've kind of answered already, but 
and I'd just like to elaborate on a little bit is you said you know, you're always drawing growing up as a child. Where did the sort of crossover between your love for art and, and doing sketches and stuff and your love of film, where did that sort of meet? Well, I mean, I used to, like, I can think back to even trying to trying to draw E.T. when E.T. came out, you know, and, like, if, if I looked at them now, I'd be like, they were quite bad. But at the time, you, movies and drawing, I remember drawing X-Wings, having battles in space on a page when I was very young. And, and uh, if there was a character from a TV show, I'd be trying to draw them in my little, it wasn't really a sketchbook, it was more like a, a scrapbook type thing so you know you could stick things in it or you could draw in it it was like quite quite a nice gray paper actually <laughs> the influences that i had as a kid from tv like i love tv shows like knight rider and the a-team and street hawk and airwolf was it automan and uh, there's like all around the 80s these tv shows came out that were just exciting and you know cars that would talk and you know, all this kind of stuff. And it just influenced me so much, like got me excited about this, or the world that might exist, you know, from growing up in Manchester where not that much was happening to seeing these things happening on TV that were just so fantastical that it blew me away. And I mean, I didn't go to the cinema that much when I was a kid. It wasn't until probably 1985 time. I remember going to see Ghostbusters with my dad and my sister. Uh, it's one of the memorable movie experiences I remember but actually prior to that I did I did see Return of the Jedi in the cinema so I would have only been about six or seven years old I think it was uh it was my friend's birthday and his mom worked at the Odeon in Manchester she managed to she must have managed she must have been a manager or something because she she got there was only like I don't know five or six of us and we all got to see the movie well, there's no one else in the cinema it's like a private screening for us we could see any movie we wanted, so we chose, I think we chose three movies, I think. One was, I might be wrong, but there was a Superman movie, there was a James Bond movie, and Return of the Jedi. Yeah, it would have been, if it was 83, I think it would have been Superman 3, uh, and yeah. the Bond film, I think, would have been Octopussy. Oh, so yeah, that's yeah. it. And then obviously Return of the Jedi. So did you see all three, or did you just go in and... and... <laughs> yeah, I think we did. Wow, yeah. what, what a triple bill. No, it was amazing. You know, I, I, it, you know, you you mentioned the period there that we grew up in. I, I was born the same year as you. You're absolutely right. It was it was a great time to be growing up if you were into film. Mm. Um, I think much like you, my my sort of trips to the cinema were a little bit few and far between. And, and like you say, a lot of the stuff that influenced me as a child actually came through television. And all of those shows you mentioned there, funny enough, we were talking about on, on the last episode, which which was about V, the miniseries. And then, you know, it was just a general discussion of television. And a lot of the things you just mentioned came up, like Airwolf, you know, you had Knight Rider, The A-Team, Automan, some of which haven't aged well. In fact, I think pretty much the majority of them probably haven't. But... As a child, having things like the A-Team, it, it wasn't so much high concept, but certainly things like Knight Rider and Street Hawk and Airwolf were. And it, it sort of made up for the fact, I think, as a child, I couldn't get to the cinema as much. But then, I don't know if, if you were the same, Paul. I, I would imagine being of the same generation you were. The film influences for me then came through the video rental shop. Yeah. And, and again, you know, there was that thing of not only were you, would you like want to be the first to sort of rent that copy of Ghostbusters when it finally came out on VHS, but, you know, if you could, you know, you'd, you'd get to know the guy that ran the video shop. I think the, the, the guy that ran ours was a guy by the name of Mike. And, um, you know, my dad was good friends with him, which, which helped a lot. And it would always be a case of, oh, Mike, 
any chance you can put aside like you know that uh, Ghostbusters uh, poster you've got if you've got a few copies in and for whatever reason you know a video store so mine wasn't the biggest one but it usually have about six or seven copies yeah. of the same poster and fair play I would always walk away with you know if I was the first to rent the film I'd have a copy of the film under one arm and a rolled up poster in the other yeah, and then you know it, and again this was this was a time where movie posters were incredibly sort of influential on me because you'd go you, any you know video shops were everywhere this is something that the younger generation maybe won't understand now mm. because obviously they you know they they've, they've gone the way of the dodo yeah um you know for better or worse we've got so much material available to us digitally now mm-hmm. but you know we grew up in a very sort of special time and and those posters were sort of key to me getting into film and and something which has always stuck with me which is why i think you know I, i've gravitated towards your work which you know you've mentioned drew struzan already your posters have featured very prominently in our film 89 poster of the day series and i've noticed a lot of comments from people where they've said how much your work and your style is is similar to that of drew struzan how, how much of an influence on you has he been uh well, the thing the thing about Drew's work is it's to me, or to, I mean, to a lot of people, it's it's kind of mesmerizing. And so I I used to eventually I I started going to movie fairs and I started picking up posters that I was looking for, and you know it became a real hunt of you know to try to find the artwork. So and because you know posters like twenty seven by forty inches, they were pretty big pieces of art so you could actually look at them pretty close and see all the marks and the pencil strokes and and kind of see it's kind of like um movie poster csi because i was like trying to figure out how he was creating these pieces and i mean i I, when i was younger i was experimenting with trying to trying to get that aesthetic across in my work in my drawings um because it, it just made me feel so good like his artwork just made me feel good. It's like John Williams's music. If I'm feeling down, I just put John Williams on, and it makes me happy. If I'm feeling down, I want to look at some of Drew's artwork, and it makes me feel good again. You know, so the artwork was just giving me this sense of something inside me that was making me feel good. So I was I was compelled to try and recreate similar things. And so when I'm working on a piece today, I still think along those lines the the aesthetic of that style of work is something that excites me still i mean it's difficult to put into words really but it's very much a feeling it's like it feels right or it feels good and you know if it's not working it just doesn't work but when it when it feels right and it looks right and it's coming together nicely it's everything's special and everything's magical but drew's work was a huge influence on me as well as other artists work as well like richard amsell and Bob Peak, specifically those two, you know, between them they did a lot of work as well at the, around the 80s that, that I, I would be, you know, I would be seeing. And, and I've come to appreciate more and more as over the years, you know, people and people that influenced those people before them, even going back as far as Norman Rockwell and then before Norman Rockwell or around the time, you know, like Maxfield Parish and J.C. Leyendecker, and it's kind of like a beautiful history of illustrative art, especially American art, which is something that, I mean, America in general, growing up watching TV and seeing movies, you know, America was like this amazing special place where all these amazing great things happen. You know, everyone who I was influenced by was pretty much in America. That's what it seemed to be. I mean, the only English stuff I can remember off TV was maybe the... (laughs) 
<laughs> the first thing that's just coming to my head is is the oddies. Is it the oddies? Oh, yeah, with um, yeah, with Bill Oddie and oh, the goodies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, Bill Oddie. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no things like that, and and uh, some like cartoons and Charlton and the Wheelies and uh, Mister Man and kind of it, it, it almost felt like childish stuff compared to what the other stuff like the Night Rider and all that stuff, which felt like heroic and yeah. like in the body yeah it's like yeah you, you you mentioned things like Chalton and the wheelies you know that witch always disturbed me with a big long yeah, chin yeah. and yeah you know we had things like even the kids cartoons things like banana man danger mouse banana man. Banana yeah, man. yeah they, they they were funny they were light-hearted they were amusing they were things you would watch on citv or, or whatever yeah. you know the, the bbc thing was called at the time but when you're in the playground, you, you, you'd never be pretending to be Danger Mouse or Penfold or Banana Man. No, no. You, yeah, you'd always be right, Han Solo or, or Luke Skywalker, or you'd be, you know, talking into your watch, pretending to be Michael Knight, or, exactly. you know, you'd be arguing about which one's going to be B.A. Baracus, which one's going to be Face. Yeah. Um, no, no one ever really wanted to be Murdoch. <laughs> But, you know, it was, yeah, it, the, the cool influences, the things that it was cool to like as a kid all seemed to come from across the pond in America. Yeah, they did. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the history of, of, of film posters in America and the fact that, you know, I think it was um, RKO that hired uh, Norman Rockwell, who was like a famed American illustrator at the time, to paint a poster for them to promote Orson Welles's Magnificent Ambersons, which I'm pretty sure is one of the first, you know, really famous posters that he did. And then, you know, there's like a sort of evolution of film poster art where it became pretty much like a, a viable art form in itself. And throughout the 50s, you had artists like Al Callis, who was like sort of the master of the, the sort of trashy B-movie posters. And, you know, even today, these there's still like, like a cool sort of chic attached to these, like people like Ronald Brown, you know, that classic attack of the 50-foot woman poster, which you'll still see put up on in, in um, students' dorms these days. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's. I think we'll come on to later. That there's a sort of bit of a plague that's come into modern movie poster design. I think. I mean, like some of the old classic movie posters. I mean, well, not don't have to be classic, but they have. They do have longevity. Like I think when when you put a poster up in your bedroom or wherever, it was like a chance to relive the movie that you love so much. So when you just looked at the poster, you'd just instantly kind of be transported back to that moment where you know you're kind of watching the movie. It's the same with the soundtrack. Especially, I mean, for me, it is anyway. You don't always, you're not always able to watch that movie 24 hours a day, but you can play the soundtrack in the background while you're doing stuff, and you can be reminded, or you can even sit down, totally focus on it, and even relive the movie almost frame by frame in your mind. It's a way of reliving something that you've enjoyed, and so a movie poster to me is something that it's like a window into the actual film itself can be present all the time and you're able to look at it and take yourself back to that moment that you enjoyed not only that but to be able to try and sell a movie in a single image you know i mean it's not an easy thing to do the good posters of, of a lot of people might remember the poster they may never have seen the movie even you know but they know that poster because it's so iconic that's that's a great sort of connection you've made there paul between movie soundtracks and and film scores and, yeah. and posters because you only need to listen to the few, you know, the first few notes of, of John Williams' classic, you know, Superman themes, you know, his um, Indiana Jones theme, and immediately 
Um, if you're familiar with those films, as people from our generation inevitably are, you 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 instantly get transported back into that film, and it's it's the same with a film poster. A, a good film poster, be it something that's quite minimalist, like say for example the um, Jurassic Park one sheet, which was just you know the the Jurassic Park logo. Yeah. Very simple in its execution. It, it's probably something if you were to replicate that these days, you probably wouldn't even have to put pen to paper. That's something that could be done entirely digitally. But it immediately gets across with a simple tagline. Um, I think it was uh, an adventure 65 million years in the making. It just gets across exactly what that film is trying to sell to you. That is the sign of a good movie poster, be it one that is simple, minimalist like that. Yeah. And, and like the you know that that classic alien poster with the egg and mm-hmm. the that sort of bizarre sort of grid like floor that it seems to be hovering above it, it just sort of sets a tone for a film that that's something I find that your posters do as well they also you know it, I can't get away from the fact they just do remind me of the, of the work of, of classic film poster artists and I think the first time I ever saw your work before I knew who you were I actually thought oh that that's a that, that's like a Richard Amsel poster that I've never actually seen, or that is a Drew Struzan poster I've never seen. And then when I actually did a bit of research and found out who he was, I was like, right, okay. So there are modern film poster artists who are replicating this work, and I've got to say, to an extent, matching and sometimes bettering those original posters. It moves on then to something that, you know, I think we have to discuss talking about film posters, and that's the sort of the plague that I'm noticing with a lot of modern movie posters these days now, are falling foul of what I can best call this sort of photoshopping, photoshopped approach, which at its absolute best can sometimes be passable. I think on the whole for me is like pretty much an affront to the, you know, the film poster art form. As someone whose style is very much rooted in the traditional form, what are your thoughts on this sort of, you know, proliferation of photoshopped stuff that we're seeing with modern film posters? Photoshop's a bit of an ugly word to to kind of associate like that because I use Photoshop to do my work and, you know, it's one of those things that people say and and it's kind of like it, they almost say it to make it out like if it's been done on Photoshop, it's no good. Some of the posters that are created by some of the greatest designers in the world today in the movie industry, they're just the amount of work that goes into them, you, you'd be blown away. It's like... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, some projects that you may work on or that they, that they would work on, they don't always get all the information. They have to build stuff that doesn't even yeah. exist. You know, I have a huge admiration for the, the amount of work that goes into the, the posters. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's some that aren't great. There are some that are fantastic. Yeah, and Paul, you're absolutely right, and I don't want to give a bad word to Photoshop because it's a pa- it's a package that's been very helpful to me when I'm like designing the site banners and stuff like that. Just because it's a photo, it looks like a photo. The poster looks photographic. It doesn't mean it's a bad poster at all. When it comes to movie posters, though, preference my preference is for an illustrated poster because I think it can do something extra to certain types of movies. Like I don't think it's suitable for every type of movie. You know, the photo, the way of working with photos and for the main poster, it works perfect for certain types of movie. And then illustrated movie posters look better for other types of movies. You know, they. They're great for the horror genre and the fantasy genre, even science fiction it can be good for. I like a lot of the stuff I'm seeing. I don't like a lot of the stuff I'm seeing. I'm kind of like torn between seeing stuff and going, oh, well, that was a wasted opportunity, I think, or, you know, or wow, they really nailed it with that one. Sometimes it's shockingly good and sometimes they are shockingly bad. Mm-hmm. You know, it's down to sometimes 
the amount of people involved or, you know, uh, or who's involved or the budget or <laughs> it could be a number of things that are kind of hampering something. Maybe the movie's not that good after all. There is good and there is bad in everything and it's the same in, when it comes to movie posters and movies in general. You can have a bad movie with a great poster, you can have a great poster with a bad movie, you can have a great score with a with a bad movie. The winning combination and that lightning in the bottle moment doesn't happen all the time. So to have a great movie, a great score, a great poster, a great cast and all that, it can be a rare thing. And I think a lot of studios are just trying to replicate that and trying to get that. We went to see Nutcracker the other day. It was a disappointment, I'll say that. Oh, Paul, please feel feel free to be as critical as you want. You, <laughs> so, some of our episodes, we, we try not to, but when we've... We, we sort of schedule in a new film to review and it doesn't go to our liking. We, we don't tend to hold back. We tend to try and justify our, our opinions as much as possible and to be fair to the film. But, you know, that's what we're all about, the Film 89. We're, we're, a, we're a film website where we will offer sometimes our opinions, which, you know, are not going to be to the, to the, you know, to the liking of the filmmakers. But yeah. one of the things you've mentioned here, you are right. This use of the word photoshopped is a, is a bad habit I'm probably picking up from social media because I don't want to, you know, put a, a, a blight on the name of the Photoshop packaging because it's extremely useful. And I don't, you know, obviously I know that a lot of film poster artists use it to great effect, but maybe I should use the term um, badly collaged posters because, like you say, um, yeah. you know, a poster doesn't have to have a, a sort of hand drawn feel to be good. One of the ones I've, I've, that comes to mind there is um, back in 2013 when Marvel Studios released Thor: The Dark World. One of the one sheets they released there was it was actually a, an on-set production still of Chris Hemsworth just holding the hammer, sort of in, in like a sort of action pose, which yeah. they sort of then turned into one of the one sheets. And the way they did it was it was incredibly tasteful. It was a brilliant poster, which then subsequently then was used on the US Blu-ray 3D release, which is um, one which I own, and it comes with a lovely sort of embossed shiny slipcase. And that's a great example of how uh, you know a photograph can be turned into a fantastic poster. But then one of the best examples of modern ones which have just been really poor, which springs to mind, is there was a Sony Pictures Spider-Man Homecoming poster that as soon as it went up on social media, yeah, it got, it got slated. Yeah, it got slated. And my initial thought was, no, that, that can't be something that a major studio can release as a, as a, as a, as a serious attempt at a film poster. Mm. It was incredibly shonky. It, it had that really poor sort of floating head effect where, you know, it looked like certain characters' heads were, were put onto their body. You know, like that sort of thing you see in a straight-to-DVD Nicolas Cage <laughs> cover. God bless Nicolas Cage, you know. Love it, loving the bits, but some of those covers just look like the, like the poster for um, what was that film Bangkok? Something he released a few years back that mm. it just looked ridiculous. And mm. you know, to see you know a, a massive studio like Sony when they're doing this collaboration with Marvel Studios, and that's the poster they put out. You know, they they put out a few um, really good posters for Spider Man Homecoming. Oh, there were some really great. Yeah, ones. like the, like the one of him um, sort of lying across um, from the Hudson River with his, yeah. with his backpack and his yellow jacket. Fantastic yeah. poster. Yeah, there um, was him holding on the side of a sign. And yeah, it was, yeah, it was a shame about that main poster. I, I remember seeing it and thinking it was almost like they'd not been color corrected or something because the images didn't look cohesive together. They didn't look like they belonged together. And usually when you're working on a poster, you kind of, that's one of the things you try and do. You try and make the images part of one image. So it's not like you've got an image from over here and an image from over here and you've kind of slammed them together. 
it's supposed to look like they were always together. And it's a shame because the Spider-Man movies great. I've always Spider-Man is one of my favorite superheroes of all time. Just a shame. But then the other the other pictures, the other posters in the campaign made up for it, you know. And the movie made up for it. So I don't feel so bad. But yeah, there there should be some kind of barometer of like greatness. Whereas whoever makes the decisions. They don't have that, or or they're not showing it to the right people, or they're not talking about it to the right people. It's not always. It's not just down to one person. Usually, it's it's, it's a group decision. I would have hoped, and so if everyone looked at it and said, "Yeah, we love this post. It's so great," and then it came out and not so great, I'm just wondering why. So, yeah, and that's you know that's not to take too much away from the Sony marketing team because um, Becky Diano is a big friend of the of the Film Eighty Nine uh, crew. She yeah. she actually works for um, international marketing for Sony Pictures. Yeah, okay. they, they've done an amazing job with both Spider Man Homecoming. Uh, they did a fantastic job on Jumanji: Welcome to the Jungle, which you know that, that made close to a billion dollars. Who would have ever thought wow. that you know a sequel to Jumanji yeah. um, would have made that much money? Like it or not, their recent film Venom that was very well marketed and has done extremely well. I think it's one of the highest October openings ever. So you know, all, all credit to them. It was just, you know, because they're such a, a good marketing team, actually, it really surprised me that that one poster seemed to slip through their quality control. Mm. And, and then you see other franchises where, the, you know, the, the posters are just, you know, they just do rely wholly on this very sort of um, poorly conceived sort of montage quality of photos. Yeah. But Paul, going back to your own work, can you just take us through the production process of one of your pieces from conception to completion, uh, what that involves, the materials and the programs and the software that you use, and, and just sort of how long does it take to make, you know, a, an average Paul ship a piece? All right. Well, they, I mean, they vary in time, scale, and it depends a lot on the project, how many people need to approve things and all that along the way. But generally speaking, the the way it would normally work is um, usually get an email from the client or, or a phone call and, you know, you start talking about it. You find out if you're available to do it. Uh, but basically, it starts with, the story and hopefully you know you can talk to the studio or the people that you're working with about what the story is and what we what we want to try and achieve that doesn't always happen but that's ideally you want to kind of know these things and then you get access or are given still photography to look through and you know a big part of the job is to spend time looking at every shot that you've got available to you and keep in mind the ultimate goal of the of the poster or whatever it is you're working on to kind of get the right look and the right feel from the characters and images that work together. A lot of it's like done in my own head, so it's like I kind of have a vision in my own head of what I think it should be or what they maybe should look like. So when I see it, it's like that's the one that'll be good. When all that's selected, then you start piecing it together in Photoshop and putting it all together and creating a rough kind of composition and at this point then I'll send it back to the client and get their opinions on it and at this stage just like a rough photoshop file with a bit of color grading and just like an idea of like you know if you squint your eyes you can kind of think yeah that's what it's going to look like there may be some changes like oh make this character bigger or smaller or take that one out we don't need that one all sorts of different things can happen once that stage is complete then it's down to the illustrating side of it, which is basically making it look pretty and cohesive and an aesthetic that pleases me the most. So the composition takes a long time. The composition is basically basically to me a lot of the storytelling 
and then once the storytelling is complete, then it's a case of it's like you're you're finishing it off. You're kind of like editing it down to make it look. You're polishing it basically. So it's basically the, the illustration side to me is the polishing of the artwork to make it look the way I think it should be looking in the presentation. And then that's once that's complete, and that can take between you know from start to finish it can be you know a week two weeks to four weeks to sometimes two months it, it's so varied depending on how many changes need to be made and and changes even can come at the end as well once you've once you've got all the approvals and you spend like two solid days illustrating it there could be more changes then you have to go back and you have to like re-edit and then re-illustrate just like they would if it was not digital or you know if you're doing it on paper this it's the same scenario. That's not changed. That still happens all the time. So, so Paul, how much you know, as you've seen the sort of change in the use of tools and and you know digital assistance come in, you know, in the last sort of two decades, how much has stuff like you know Photoshop and computer packages helped you in your job, and how much easier has it made it for you to sort of, in particular, like make last minute adjustments to pieces without obviously having to you know start from scratch as you would have yeah. back in the days of pen and acrylics and paint. I think it's made a. I think it's made a big change. I mean, one of the biggest things for me was I started working digitally about twenty years ago, but just before the year two thousand, I think. So it's eighteen years ago. Say, the hard part. The, the reason was like a client. I would. I didn't have that much work on at the time, and a client, which was Penguin Books, they contacted me and said, because um, I had a little website, like I really love your work, um, and we'd like you to do this series for us. And do you work digitally? And I had I don't, at that moment I wasn't really. It was all acrylics and pencil crayons and on illustration board. I was pretty desperate. I said, "Yeah, I do. I work digitally." And they said, "Well, we want it to be in. In I want it to look like a real painting, but we want it to dig, work, work digitally." I immediately went out because I had a computer. I, just, I needed. A, I think I needed a Wacom tablet and a copy of Coral Painter because. I'd heard about that one and it looked pretty good. So I, I had a little bit of time before the project kicked off. I just started going, well, how would I paint traditionally? And let's see how that works digitally using layers. And so I just started like with an underdrawing and then painted over the top and uh, just took it from there really and see how it worked. And, and the results were actually not bad. <laughs> <laughs> And so it's been a it's been a it's been a progression since then for the last sort of eighteen year, or nineteen years really. But yeah, I mean it does it does um, it does free you up a lot, especially when there are changes like when time is of such an essence um, to to have to scrub down a board a part of it and then repaint it, wait for the paint to dry, and then and then start illustrating again. You know, you're talking a couple of hours minimum for the paint to dry and everything else, and then you'd have to kind of get the artwork re-scanned or sent to somewhere to be scanned professionally. Uh, there's all those things to consider. So when a change happens here, it's not so bad. You know, you can get it done within an hour usually. And even then, they're, they're kind of shocked that you did it so quick. You know, it can be done. You know, the flexibility when it comes to being able to, as soon as the artwork's done, within a few minutes, it's uploaded and, and a link is sent to the client to download it. You don't have to wait for the mail. You don't have to wait for anything. <laughs> no, no couriers or anything involved. You know, all that kind of stuff. The actual the method of delivery is so different. That's a great bonus too. And it's you know it is fun. I get I do get a good I get a real kick out of doing this. I get the similar feeling that I get when I paint in, in a traditional way. 
as I do with creating digitally. I get the same kind of pleasure from it. But yeah, I, I'm 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 going to be getting my paints out again soon and start painting and drawing again for real uh, on real paper because I do miss it. You know, I quite like getting my hands dirty occasionally. This way, you don't have any paint to mop up or anything. It's just. Uh, it's quite clean, really. Paul, at the, at the moment, right, one of the posters of yours I'm looking at is your Robocop, Robocop 2 poster that I think you did for the Shout Factory Blu-ray yeah. release last year. Yeah. Now, that's a film which I'm, I've, I've got a very intimate relationship with that film. Okay. The, the first Robocop, and again, I don't want to go too much over old ground, which I've gone over count, countless times on both Wrong Reel and both on this podcast. Robocop, <laughs> Robocop's my favourite film. Yeah. Robocop 2 was a film that I was looking forward to more than any other film. So I have got, I basically soaked up for six months before its UK release. I soaked up every little bit of material I could about the film. So when I when I look at your Robocop 2 piece that uh, that you did for Shout Factory, I, I can see that you've you've used either for reference or you've basically um, gone over um, actual um, images from the film. It, do you actually use those images? Say, for example, the you know you've got Tom Noonan in that piece, and you've got Dan O'Hurley. Do you actually go over um, original shots of those digitally, or do you actually just use them as direct reference and draw them freehand? No, I mean for a lot of the times it is pretty much once the composition is set in stone, then I'm painting over the composition. Yeah, I'm actually painting over it. If I was gonna, if I was doing it traditionally, I'd be printing out the composition from Photoshop, I'd be printing it out, I'd be projecting onto the board and tracing it. So it's kind of like saving a bit of time doing it that way. But yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it is very much, I mean, some of the jobs are just paint over jobs, some of them aren't, but, you know, sometimes working on some of the low budget projects, you know, you have to kind of say, well, like, you know, I, I can't spend like three weeks on this one. I need to kind of bash it out quickly because I've got other jobs to do as well. But you just do the best you can and, you know, you hope it goes down well. Say for example, using me, you know, as an example. Now, say I came to you and said, "Paul, look, I'm by, I'm, I'm no artist by any means. At the very best, I could probably draw a half decent tree. I, I'm, I'm no Bob Ross, um, but that's about it." Say now, I said, "Paul, what sort of equipment and stuff would I need to buy just to be able to do some sort of basic um, digital illustrations in order to say submit to one of these film poster appreciation sites like um, like DeviantArt or something like that?" What's what's the sort of bare minimum sort of kit I would need to to sort of get into the into the realms of digital art creation? Just for digital only, I'd say get yourself an iPad to start with because that's one of the most portable drawing experiences you can have it's a, it's a good experience too it's fun i mean the ideally i mean i mean photoshop's going to be coming out on the ipad next year you know it's going to be a fully fledged app like the application that you get on your computer is going to be pretty much on your ipad and so that is going to change things quite dramatically and i think if you get yourself like a tablet of some kind and it can have an app on it that's as powerful as as photoshop then you know the art brushes that are in photoshop are phenomenal i use them all the time they were originally created by a guy called kyle t webster who then before before I mean, basically adobe basically i think they must have bought them all off him and then now Kyle is working with Adobe and they're just about to bring out some uh, new software that Kyle has been actually working with a team at Adobe to create called Gemini and it simulates real media so you can draw and paint on your tablet and, you know it's like watercolor and uh, oil and pretty exciting stuff I mean I think if you're gonna if you're gonna have a dabble in artwork creation on a digital 
in a digital realm, then you can't go wrong with an iPad. I think what Apple have been doing with the technology, along with what people are making apps, you know, for the iPad, it's you know, you pick it up and you can start drawing in in moments, and you start painting in moments. Yeah, I'd, I'd suggest that. That would be my one and only thing to say. Or, or especially if you're on a budget, like you can't afford to get the computer and the the Cintiq screen, I mean, this is, you know, I've got, an, I've got an iMac here, a Cintiq screen, I've got a Wacom tablet as well, I've got a, a six terabyte backup system, and, you know, it kind of goes on and on and on, but, you know, for the bare minimum, then I'd say a tablet, just, you know, go and play with one. My mum has uh, got an iPad, and she wants to, stay. she had to go on mine a couple of weeks ago, and she started creating a paint a picture from from nothing and she loved it it's good fun it's just good fun i think if you can enjoy it just who knows what you're gonna make as for a sketching experience as well i think the ipad's great you know you pick up the weight you can hold it it's like a it's like a pad so paul if i put on my christmas list then for my I, wife uh, an ipad pro a stylus and a copy of photoshop that should be enough for me yeah i mean oh, it's a start isn't it yeah I, I think, <laughs> photoshop won't be out by christmas so you'd have to wait for that but there are other things you can play with they, they've, they've got a few photoshop sort of apps which you can get for free at the moment on the ipad and it, it's one which i've um used to, to make a few sort of pieces for the website banner and things like that yeah, yeah there, there's no sort of fully fledged kind of oh. photoshop app available at the moment which but it's going to be coming so just get ready for that mm. because i think it's going to be pretty great i mean i hope it's going to be great because at the moment if, if i if i'm on the road i need to take take my work with me i need a laptop and the ipad and i actually plug my ipad into the laptop and it kind of uses a piece of software it's called astropad yeah well it'll either mirror or create another screen so i can use photoshop on my ipad that way and it's and it's kind of okay it works okay but this last trip it failed on me and i was in la and i was like i was working on the muse the Muse artwork for the, mu- the new Muse album, which is actually out today, Simulation Theory. Yeah, there was more. I mean, the job went on for quite a while. There was lots of changes and things need to be done. And I was in America, just on San Diego Comic Con, so I did a, some work in a hotel there. Then I was back in LA for a week for. I was hoping to have some meetings that week, but I ended up having to work. And when I got my system out, you know, the the iPad and everything connected, it was like it wasn't working. And I'm like, well great so i had to actually rent a cintiq screen from a local uh, apple retailer for the week so uh, not everyone's you know wants to be doing that when they're working remotely but i mean it worked out in the end <laughs> but yeah it was like technology can fail you but then you know i wouldn't be able to take my drawing boards with me everywhere i go you know to be able to be on the road and create something for you know a big rock, pop rock band uh, like Muse, while you're yeah you know, thousands of thousands of miles away from your own studio is pretty cool. So you mentioned there, Paul, that obviously you've been to Comic Con recently, and it's clear from your social media accounts that you do regularly attend conventions. From your point of view, what what is the best thing about these conventions for you? Is it is it more to sort of spread the visibility of your work and to get potential clients, or is it more about engaging with your fans? Well, I mean, I don't have a huge fan base. So I, I it's not like I, 
I, I can quite easily walk down the street and I don't get mobbed, so I don't have to worry about that. The, the thing about the conventions like San Diego, and I didn't get to New York this year, but well, that's a really fun one to go to, is, is basically is meeting, pe- meeting people that are your peers, other artists, and we don't really get to hang out together much. But when we do, it's like, I mean, most of us are just like instantly friends because we have respect for each other's work and we kind of, we just have this thing in common. And it's so easy to talk to each other. And it's like, I mean, most of us are stuck indoors most of the week. We don't go out much. So when you do get to see everyone, it's wonderful. And also clients that are at these conventions, it's great to catch up with them and have meetings with them and and talk about potential future prospects and jobs and that may be down the line. And, and just to... Be seeing them face to face is really nice too. To me, it's like it's quite a new thing for me. I really I, the first San Diego I went to was maybe th- three years ago. I think it was three or four years ago. So and I, and I said to myself after the first one, it's like I, I should try and do this every year because it's it's just. I mean, it's mental. It really is mental, and you like walk probably about twenty miles a day, but it's just great. It's just great to see everybody. It is good. So you mentioned there, Paul, obviously meeting up with you know other people in the same line of work as you. Which, which other artists that, that are working today, sort of contemporary film poster artists, do, do you admire the most? Oh my God, there's, there's a lot. One, one of the guys, one of the first guys I met at a convention might have been Jason Edmiston, and we we became friends quite quickly. I'm sure you're familiar with his work, but he, has, he hasn't actually done that many movie posters. He's done a lot of stuff for Mondo. But he loves movie posters, and he really wants to do some movie posters. But he does all sorts. He's done toy packages. He's got a book out. He's, I love his paintings, and, you know, he's so good. Uh, and he's a wonderful guy, too. You know, this is the nice thing about this is, like, not only is their artwork great, but they're great people, too. Um, so Jason's one. Uh, Jock, who's a, an illustrator who does a lot of work for DC and Batman uh, comics, been a huge fan of his work for for a long time and i've had the chance to meet him a couple of times and i think we could call ourselves friends <laughs> I, I do know of jason and um it's that cover to his book um the art of jason edmiston with the yeah. um it's the texas chainsaw massacre one isn't it yeah, that's right. and it's got that close-up of, of sally hardesty's eye with a, with a teardrop and um yeah. i think you can can you see Leatherface sort of reflected in her, in her iris? Uh, yeah, I've, I think I've got it right here. So oh, it, it, that is a cracking piece. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, it's called Visceral, and I've got it right here. And he, he also yeah. did the... Um, there was a Halloween piece he did where um, it, was the, it was the shot of Michael Myers sort of breaking through the slatted sort of wardrobe right. trying to get Laurie Strode. And he just did a companion piece to that, yeah. actually, which is the view of Michael... Michael Myers that just uh, came out recently, but yeah, I mean, yeah, um, I was thinking of who else, kind of on the spot. But at conventions, there's a lot of the, a lot of the artists have their own booths, so it's just great to you be able to go around the booths and see everybody and catch up with people. And I've got so many illustrator friends that I, I, I love, and I wish I could hang out with them more often. But you just get the opportunity. So before we move on to sort of taking a deep dive onto talking about classic movie posters and and the sort of renowned movie poster artists, much of whom have passed away and are not working anymore, what what sort of modern film posters that you've seen, which have had a general release, have you have you sort of most been attracted to and thought, yeah, you know, that is a sort of film poster I'd be satisfied to put out there um, to, to to promote the film. 
in recent times. You know, one one that really struck me. I mean, I love the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, and what the Guardians of the Galaxy, both Volume One and Two, the posters came out great for those. That's a great example of you know illustrated. They're, they're photos, but there's a they are illustrations, obviously, but they, it's not quite the illustrations that I do. It's like a very photo real illustrations. You know, they just they give you, they just promise you so much and they deliver and I really love those. And I actually I know one of the guys involved in that actually and, and he he's a really nice guy too. And I know there's a lot of great people doing these posters, but that that was one that I really liked. Yeah, I think what they do well is uh, and I think they it was the same with Thor Ragnarok. They they sort of use colour to sort of put across the tone of the film and obviously the Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy films and then subsequently Thor Ragnarok last year they, they had a very much sort of a, a humorous sort of tongue-in-cheek sort of slant which I think yeah you know they perfectly got across in the poster just with the use of sort of gaudy colors yeah that's kind of true I mean the colors were very bright and exciting and the poses as well you know like Star-Lord is he's like so full of himself and it comes out in the poster really well his character there's so many good ones Right, moving on to sort of classic film posters then, Paul. Which film poster artists and, and sort of classic film posters, say, for example, I don't again put you on the spot, and I know I've not given you any prep for this, but just off the top of your head, if you had to put on your bedroom wall sort of 10 or maybe even five classic film posters, what would your choice be to sort of get a broad representation of, of the film posters you love? <laughs> All right. Um, well, I probably have all three of the Back to the Future movie posters. Oh, yeah. So that leaves me seven. <laughs> oh, no, you look, it's, I don't restrict if you want to say 20, by all means, you know, just fire uh, away. Oh, wow. Right, those those Back to the Future ones, they, yeah. they're okay. Drew, Drew Struzan, yeah? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. If, I'll go through a few Drew ones first that I would definitely have. Last Crusade advanced poster, which is the one with Indy holding the whip with, like, the sun behind him. Yeah. Like, just him on his own, that's amazing. Temple of Doom poster that Drew did was great. Yeah. Um, the Amsel poster for Raiders, which there was two of those, so I'm trying to think which one I like the best. I think I probably like the one with the circle around the back, the background, better than the one with, with the little truck going on down the bottom that was used on the album. Yeah. I like the one where he's, like, doing the whole whip thing. <laughs> Yeah, with, with the Amsel ones, there's the one, isn't it? He's got the whip over his shoulder when he's yeah. looking sort of more serious. And there's the one where he's yeah, he's got the whip sort of yeah above his head, ready to crack it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's the second one. I like both. I love both of them. But you know, if I had to pick Goonies, is a great poster. Oh yeah, the one with them hanging from the yeah. st- stalactite. I don't know the artist, but there was a really nice poster for the mummy, the Boris Karloff mummy. I really, I just the colours in that and everything. I love. Oh my god, some classic posters like the King Kong. The, the really classic King Kong posters, great. Yeah. I like a lot of the movie posters from the 30s and 40s, the kind of, like, pulp-looking stuff. I mean, the, the one of my favourite Star Wars posters was the, the Chantrell one, where it's the main characters are all, like, in, holding guns and, like, Luke's pointing his gun at you, and then Han Solo's going off to the left, and then yeah, layers off to the right, and Darth Vader's in the background, and... It's a space background, and that poster was just to me it was one of the best Star Wars posters. 
yes, yeah, Star Wars. You know, we could probably talk about an hour for all the cool Star Wars posters. Yeah. You know, and your uh, the Last Jedi Dolby Cinema poster. It, you've got to include that in there as well because you know that. And I'm not just saying it to blow smoke up your ass, Paul, but that is by far the best out of all of the Last Jedi posters that got um, you know any sort of release. The, the 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 main one sheets were nowhere near as good as what what you put in. And you know when I see that happen, I get quite frustrated. You know, I think back to Rogue One and. You know, some of the more minimalist posters I saw for that film. And then when you have the subsequent DVD and Blu-ray releases, and they've just used some really, you know, fairly poor collage sort of uh, covers. And I thought, well, why don't you just use the more minimalist ones? At that point, I don't think, you know, the, the Star Wars logo alone is going to sell the film. So yeah. why are they trying to push down our throats the fact that, yeah, you know, you've got, you know, all of these character, characters are in it, you know, here's, you know, Forrest Whitaker, here's Diego Luna and whatever. It's like, do we, by that point, I've already decided upon my purchase. You know, sure. when I walk into HMV, and just to personalize sort of my experience with your work, I always gravitate towards the sort of classic film releases as opposed to the sort of, you know, the, the, the new contemporary films. Yeah. And, you know, I'll always go to the Arrow video section and, you know, where they've got those the sort of specialist boutique labels. Maybe it's just me and maybe I'm in a minority. But if I pick up a copy of a Blu-ray, say, for example, The Hounds of the Baskerville or Rollerball, uh, which is another Arrow one, you know, your illustration on that Blu-ray is going to push me to more towards getting the film. Um, and I think it's something that really works. And I think far too many of the bigger companies, certainly ones like Fox, who don't tend to sort of source things out to freelance artists like you, I think they're really missing out on a trick. Just for, say, for example, Rollerball. Uh, that was a film which, you know, I was quite fond of growing up. Yeah. But when I was in HMV um, with a good bit of birthday money, which I was going to spend on a couple of Blu-rays, I picked up that film and I thought, wow, I'm really getting sold just on the on, on the cover art alone. So I think I went off to Starbucks, had a coffee, and as I was having a bit of a browse on my phone, I, I went onto a, a website, uh, I think it's Cine Outsider, um, which an amazing Blu-ray review website. They did an amazing piece on the Arrow Blu-ray of that, where they completely dissect the film, look at it from a modern perspective, and it was your uh, Blu-ray cover that made me look at that review, see that it was a you know really nice remastered picture, loads of extra features. When I went back to HMV about half hour later, um, I think of the five films I picked up, Rollerball was one of them. And one of the key selling points for me there was you know, the Blu-ray art. Again, um, another one which involved one of your pieces was I, I bought the Arrow video version of Buckaroo Banzai. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was a couple of weeks later, I saw the Shout Factory release version, which obviously is an American Blu-ray. I think it was region A coded. I haven't got a multi-region Blu-ray player. Soon as I saw your artwork, and it's not to take anything away from the original artwork that Arrow used on the UK release, which is perfectly fine. It's a really cool image of of um, Buckaroo Banzai with the sort of like the samurai sword over his shoulder. But your piece was just phenomenal. I immediately thought, Sky, are you that much of a you know? Does does the cover mean that much to you know that you're willing maybe to sort of get yourself a new Blu-ray player and start getting these Shout Factory releases, which have got such cool artwork. <laughs> I, I didn't cave, but you know, that, you thought about it. Yeah, you know, I, I certainly did. So it, it's it's not blowing smoke up your ass. I, I do think that artwork like yours does go a long way. Certainly, when you've got you know something tangible, you can hold in your hand, you can put on your shelf. I think it makes a hell of a difference. Going on to my next question of your own pieces. Now I know it, I I don't want you to say yeah, you know, I I love my own artwork, but which of your own pieces are you most proud of, are you happiest with, and have you had the best experience in creating? 
Well, first of all, I just want to say thanks for what you just said because it means so much to me to hear like how the covers caught your attention. You know, that's what it's all about. That's what the cover's all about. So it's working, and that's wonderful to hear. You don't always hear these stories, and so thank you for that. Well, as far as like my own work goes, I mean, I'm pretty happy with everything I do that I put out. There are a few things that maybe I run out of time or there's just things that could have been better but I mean there are there are a few pieces that are specific like periods of my career that kind of like but they're like they basically mark points in time when almost bucket list moments you know one of them was was working on uh, the Star Wars Celebration artwork that was a real bucket list moment because it was the 40th anniversary of Star Wars and it was like so they wanted to do something special and different and you know, it's just a real great experience working on that with uh, Lucasfilm. Paul, can we just like look into this that one piece? Because I noticed um, that that's one of the two that you've got behind you on on your wall. With that Star Wars Celebration piece, was it your decision to sort of go monochrome in that piece, or was that something that Star Wars Celebration asked of you when they commissioned you to do the piece? Well, we started first of all working on the badges for the sh- for the convention, so. And the badges, you know, they were quite specific. They wanted it to be quite sketchy, but like, you know, photo real sketches, but like rough, rough, but perfectly looking. And uh, so that was the initial concept for those. And so that's why that that happened, because they, they actually was quite specific. It wasn't my decision, but I, I, th- I thought it was a great. I mean, I remember saying to them, I think it's it's a great way of showcasing the kind of the old way, like, you know, like the underdrawing, you know, have that shown. It's like the making of things and then like the perfection of like the rest of it and then when it came to the the actual show poster the key off that i initially i did it in color because i was thinking you know for a poster you want it to be eye-catching and colorful i think if it was monochromatic you might not give it as much power they decided i mean all the key people at lucasfilm got to look at it and including kathleen kennedy and they wanted it to be in keeping with the badge artwork. So, you know, we, we went down to the sort of sepia monochrome look for the main poster art too, which I, I'll say, I, I mean, I was initially a bit disappointed because I was looking forward to doing a full-color Star Wars, you know, thing. In retrospect, I think it was a great choice. I mean, I think it, it gave it some, it, it gave it a serious, a bit of a serious tone, um, celebrating 40 years of these iconic characters introducing some of the new characters too i mean i I did a few concepts for it the idea and it was it was crammed with so many so many characters it was it was ridiculous and it was it was down to lucasfilms to tell me really who was the most important ones that they wanted to showcase and and then once we had that that dictated the final composition that was that was great to work on that i really enjoyed it and then going to orlando and seeing everyone wearing your badges and and the the big like, banners everywhere, and the posters and T-shirts and you name it. Just to give our listeners some sort of idea of like the you know the collaborative process between yourself and then your clients, like say Arrow Video and and Shout Factory. Is there much of a sort of variation in how much freedom you're given when you're designing a piece? Because I you know I can see that some of my favorite posters of yours have got things in them which which showed to me that you're a fan of that film. Take, for example, your Escape from New York poster. You've got, just above the typeface, you've got 
that sort of neon outline of the Statue of Liberty and uh, the, and the Twin Towers and, and sort of the, the skyline of Manhattan. Now, that is something that actually features in the film as like a little digital effect. I think, is it on the titles? Are you ever guided as in they say, oh, we suggest to do this, that or whatever, or is it just completely, you're given complete freedom to sort of do your own sort of composition and, and to put in the little touches like that yourself? <laughs> uh, it depends. I mean, sometimes clients are very specific, and other times they're like, "Do what you want." For the, I mean, looking back, thinking back for that Shout Factory uh, Escape from New York, I might have done another movie previous for them, and it had the. I think it might be Mad Max. I can't remember which order it was now, but it had the main figure in the middle, surrounded by other characters from the movie. So they basically said, "Just do what you did for that one, but make it, you know, make it Escape from New York." Yeah. So. That was kind of the direction, and so I could pretty much do what I wanted, and I knew I wanted that neon kind of the the, the skyline, and I wanted to have this like a, it's not real three D. It's actually they've shot it like I think it was a real model, but it had like some kind of reflective lines on it that made it look like it was three D, yeah. and so it was like a cityscape. And so I wanted that in the background too. So there's certain things that I'd want to put in there, and, and the, the characters like I, I wanted to. F- find the, the best reference I could that, that kind of gave the character of Ernest Borgnine's uh, character and there was images of Snake which weren't quite right so I think he's like a mixture of like three or four different images of Snake with his body and his head and his gun things like that I mean it, you want it to look as good as it can and you know you just try and make it work more than the film itself I love the look and the style of that movie in particular it's just you know the characters and <laughs> the, the the setting and everything it was uh, that was a fun one I mean they're all they all got their own fun bits in ways they're all great okay gun gun to the head question now then Paul all right let let's let's fast forward maybe you know a couple of decades when you and I are you know long in the dirt or cremated or whatever your preference might be. If, uh, say, for example, you know a, a big art gallery wants to do a, a, an exhibit about you know famous movie posters. Which one of Paul Shipper's posters is going to best represent his art style? Which of your posters would you want to be put on display? Just one that best represents your art style and and the films you love. Uh, you know what? I really like one of my favorite ones is one that I did for Doctor Strange. Yeah, is it is it the one with Doctor Strange looking off to the right with the sort of window of the building in his head? <laughs> That's the one. That's the one. Yeah, I know yeah. you did a few of a few Doctor Strange ones, but that yeah, that's my favorite too. That is, yeah, yeah amazing poster. Yeah, I quite like. I mean, I'm just looking at that one right now, and it's like, yeah, I, I really like how that came out. Well, if if my opinion holds any weight, I it come down to two for me probably. Either the Escape from New York one, but the the one that sort of really got me into your work was the Rollerball one. Right. I'll just, you know, if I had to pick my top 10 movie posters of all time, both classic and contemporary, that's going to be there. I just oh. love it. Absolutely love it. I, I just think it's an amazing poster that the, the color that, you know, you that sort of mix of hand drawn and photorealism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's a great piece. Oh, thanks, Guy. I really, really appreciate that. Right. Um, are there any other classic poster art, poster artists whose work is completely different in style from yours? So, say, putting aside the likes of uh, Drew Struzan, John Alvin, Richard Amsel, and the like, are there any other poster artists that you really admire? 
I think um, th- that that was a question actually from um, Steve Amos, who's who's um, you know one of the Film Eighty Nine gang, and uh, and I think he had in mind when he was asking that poster art, which is say completely different from from yours and Drew's and the rest of them. Say like uh, Saul Bass, who had obviously a very like different, completely different yeah. stuff. I, I do love a lot of the minimal stuff, but it's not something that excites me as much as you know the aesthetic that i'm more accustomed to yeah. um so i mean i'm really picky when it comes to what i like i i don't like more than i do like if that makes sense what if then paul right i run by you say my picks of my favorite posters and just to gauge my own sort of taste against yours and tell me whether or not you know they're decent choices okay i know you said you know if you you know you, minimalism isn't really your style but the, the one minimalist poster that I really like is one I've already mentioned is the original one sheet for Alien. Um, that's definitely going to be in my top 10 just because I think it gets across the sort of mood of the film in in, the, in a very simple manner. Yeah. One which is probably going to be in my top three is Roger Castell's Empire Strikes Back poster and the other one that's like the, the Gone with the Wind one as it's always referred to. That's one of my favourites. Now for years I thought that was either a Richard Amsel or Drew Struzan piece and I've, I've probably incorrectly you know, credited Struzan with that poster, but it was actually Roger Castell who whose work yeah. I wasn't that familiar with. Yeah, he did Jaws. Yeah, no, again, the no, the Jaws one sheet is yeah. that is. Uh, that's, it's just, it's just like you, that's all you, that's all you need. It's like wow. Now, it, the thing about the Jaws poster, it does what the film doesn't do. It shows you the shark. Admittedly, yeah. it shows you a grossly exaggerated scale version of the shark. Yeah. It, it again gun to my head moment that's probably going to be my all-time favorite movie poster the one poster that if if i had wall space where the wife said yeah go on you can put a, ca- a poster canvas up there i pr- yeah. probably have to be jaws yeah no it's really good i think another one i really do like is Nor- noriyoshi orai's empire strikes back poster okay you might now, have to remind me now he he's an artist that I've only recently kind of become aware of through Twitter. Now now I know obviously Japanese art, you know, in particular the sort of manga style is very unique. Now his poster style is is very much of his own and uh, I know podcast being an audio medium is very difficult to describe, but the poster it had Luke in the foreground um sort of small to medium with in his sort of best bin gear with his gun pointed. Uh-huh. Um, just behind him, and this is just going from my from my memory of it. Then you had Lando Calrissian, which was probably the most. I think he was the most prominent sort of character in the poster. Um, yeah. Let me just see if I can get get the poster up here. And then in in between, you had Luke in the foreground. You had uh, Leia and Han kissing um, as as they do on the when they're on the Millennium Falcon. And then yeah. you had at a sort of forty-five degree angle, you had the Millennium Falcon in the background. In the very background, sort of quite faint, you had Darth Vader. I think there's there's an argument for that being one of the best, certainly one of the best Star Wars posters ever. And you know there were two versions. There was the the one with the English text and the one with the Japanese text. Um, oh, it's the one with the greenish background. That's the one, yeah. And yeah. The, the first time I ever saw that was I think back in the early to mid nineties when Fox. Did they one of their last releases of the trilogy on VHS before the two uh, before the nineteen ninety seven you know remastered versions with the new effects, and the widescreen version of Empire actually had Ori's uh, art on. I'd never seen it before, and I was just completely blown away by it. Yeah, it is beautiful, absolutely. I'm, I'm just look. I'm just looking at it now. It's gorgeous. I've, I've got the a Star Wars movie poster book, and it's in there. Yeah, and you know he some of his work that I've since seen is just. It's amazing, and it 
Yeah. Other than the Japanese text on some of the original posters he did, which before they were, you know, sort of translated and, and messed around with, you know, to me it just didn't smack of, of a typical Japanese sort of style of art. But again, something really unique to himself. That's one of my favourites. And again, going back to my favourite film, I've got to say uh, Mike Bryan's Robocop One Sheet. Uh, you know, for the longest time, I, I would happily argue with people and think I was right that that was literally just um, a, a still of yeah. Peter of Peter Weller in the suit getting out of the car. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I saw a written article on the internet a few years back, um, yeah. which was an interview with Mike Bryan, and to this day, I do not understand how that is a hand drawn poster. He's airbrushed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's it, it's just. It is stunning. Yeah. And yeah. you know, it, it's it's effective. It's simple. It shows you all you need to know about the film, coupled with that sort of classic Robocop font. Yeah, it makes you feel, it gives you the real, like, feel of something that did. I, yeah. remember, I remember when I saw that image for the first time, what an impact it had on me. Just the image. That was before a trailer or anything. I was like, oh, same here. And you. A robot policeman, what? Yeah, Robocop. And if, in fact, you know, that's the reaction Paul Verhoeven had when he was handed the script for Robocop. Yeah. He was like, Robocop, are you serious? And he actually he did, he threw the script aside. The legend has it that his wife actually picked the script up, read through it, went back to him and said, Paul, I think you really need to have a look at this. There's a lot in this that I think will appeal to you. And yeah, you know, on the surface, the, the whole concept and the title alone does seem a bit trashy, a bit sort of B-movie. But that poster helped sort of completely sell the film and that, that is definitely going to be in my my, my, my top five yeah, posters of all time from that robocop poster i i mean i, I yeah and i mean the, robocop when it came out i think i mean i think it must have been an 18 release yeah like it, and i i was nowhere near 18 but you really wanted to see it you just didn't care you, you were going to find a way to see it, it it's, it's my all-time favorite film um yeah Great. But it is the my, my most personal film, the one I love most, and that is one of my by far one of my favourite posters. And I think the last one that I, I'd, I'd probably have to mention, bizarrely and unexpectedly, it was probably one of our most famous posters of the day when we do our um, Film 89 poster of the day tweet and, and Facebook post. It was yeah. it was Tom Young's poster for The Right Stuff. Okay. And it was the one with um, Sam Shepard's character sort of in the bottom left walking into the foreground and then you had the sort of rockets going up um, to the left and you had a load of character portraits like Ed Harris and, and the rest of them sort of looking off to the right. Beautiful poster, and it was just the, the composition and the use of color. That that again is one of my all-time favorites. Oh, so yeah. Sometimes they just the magic is just just right. Yeah. Um, on on some marketing campaigns, it's just like the image is so special and uh, makes you feel a certain way that you just you almost you can't recapture it. It's like that. It's of that moment, and that's it. It's never going to happen again. Yeah. When those things happen, it just it's really special. Paul, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up with two questions now. Okay. The first one, are there, are there any films which are personal to you that you'd really love to create artwork for, but you haven't yet had the chance to do so? Ooh, I'm a massive Indiana Jones fan. To the point of when I was a kid, I'd dress up as Indiana Jones. Whenever we were going anywhere as a family, I'd embarrass my family by dressing up as Indiana Jones. <laughs> if, there, if the new Indiana Jones movie comes out, I really, even if I just have one chance at having a go at doing a poster for that movie, that would be... That would be the ultimate. I could die happy the next day. No problem. Cool. Last question. Obviously, we've mentioned Drew Struzan quite a lot. And um, I really got into his work when I picked up his book a few years back, um, Drew Struzan Oeuvre. 
yeah. which is one of my favourite film-related books. I know there's a bit of a story behind it that he didn't have a particularly good sort of deal with the publisher and ended up, I think, losing some money or, or not making as much money as he should have. Uh, and yeah. then he, he released another book, The Art of Drew Struzan, and he's always been one of my favourite film poster artists. Are there any plans for a Paul Shipper book collecting all of your pieces so far? <laughs> it's definitely in the back of my mind. Yeah, we're kind of in the process of beginning to think about archiving everything from, from way back and photographing it and making notes and sizes and everything and reminiscing some stories from the start of my career. But, you know, it might, I mean, it's not going to be a one-volume thing. It's probably going to be volume one might be between some years and then volume two. I think something like that would be good. But I, it wouldn't be about getting sales. It would just be about for posterity, really, just kind of like, yeah something like a chronicle of because yeah i mean i i've been fortunate enough to do quite a lot of different work over the last few years and i actually have trouble remembering some of the things i actually worked on you know someone will remind me i'm like god yeah i did i did that one i forgot i don't know how i forget things but you just do and so yeah to have it in a book or something would be great and a, a few years ago i did a little a softbound book i printed like i got like a hundred or so printed I, I sent them out to clients and friends at christmas time one year and i had a few left over so i sold them online but that was something i was keen on doing every year but i just it, it was quite expensive <laughs> hmm. it was like um so it didn't happen but it's something that in the future I think would be a lovely idea to have, you know, some kind of book containing all the artwork that I've created. That'd be wonderful. Fingers crossed it'll happen. It'll be it'd be really nice to be able to do. It. I know a lot of artist friends who are bringing their own books out at the moment or getting published deals, and you know, it seems to be the sort of thing people are doing, even though you know they're in the middle of their career or you know they're not. It's not like they're retiring and the, here's all the work I ever did. It's more like this is me up to this point and this is what I've done, and then. People want to see that. People want to see it, be able to study it and look at it. And yeah, I, I'm totally up for a book. Well, you you definitely have a customer in me, Paul. Oh, thanks. Even if I sell one, that's totally fine. I'll probably send you one for free. Oh, Paul, I'd be extremely grateful. <laughs> Paul, I, I'd just like to say thank you very much for your time. I know you're extremely busy. Thanks, Guy. It's been really nice talking to you. Honestly, I, I genuinely mean it, and speaking on behalf of the rest of the lads, um, we, we we discuss film privately on an almost daily basis. And you know, that's the rest of the Film 89 crew. They, they're all unanimous in their approval of your work. They love your style, and you know, anytime we post a, a Paul Shipper poster of the day, it's always extremely popular. So thanks for sharing the work so much. And I, I, whenever you do, I'm always like humbled by it because it's it's just lovely. It is really nice that you know even the stuff that was half forgotten about from a few years ago that you might you might think is worthy of that. Then it's like amazing to me. My wife probably wouldn't thank you, Paul, simply because um, she always moans when a new Blu-ray comes through the post, and um, you know there's a fair chance oftentimes it's because it's got you know a, a, a nice cover on it, and and you know a lot of them are down to you. So she probably wouldn't thank you, but you know I love your work, Paul. Keep it up, and. Um, <laughs> Where can where can people find you on social media if they want to chat to you uh, about your work? Um, you can find me at Paul Shipper on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm on Facebook. I got a page which is Paul Shipper Studio, and uh, my website is paulshipperstudio.com. Fantastic. Paul, like I say, thank you very much for coming on. Um, it's been great discussing film posters with you. I know podcasting is is an audio medium, but you know, as soon as this episode goes out, um, I'll be flooding Twitter and Facebook with loads of images of your stuff and links to your website. Oh, that's so cool. 
So thanks, Paul, and um, thank you, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. Um, we've got a few uh, in the pipeline now. Not sure what order they're going to be released in, so um, just so I don't sound like a dick, I'm not going to go and promise myself, uh, promise something that we might not be delivering just yet. But we have got some great episodes upcoming in the run-up to Christmas. So thanks, everyone, again, for your continued support, for listening to the podcast. Please like, subscribe, uh, recommend us to your friends. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook, at Sky Movies. You can find us all on Twitter and Facebook, at Film89UK. Please have a look at the website, film89.co.uk. We're always keeping it um, up to date with news pieces and um, features and reviews. And as we usually say, in uh, the words of Mr. Gaskin, stay safe, stay happy, but more importantly, stay classy.